All right, welcome back to Two Rivers, Two Takes, your podcast home where we can discuss the episodes of The Wheel of Time. I'm Daryl. And I'm Philip. And here we are with episode two of season one. Um, A lot going on in this episode. We sort of get out of the two rivers and we're out in the larger world. Yeah, we do an intro with the White Cloaks. They have captured a yellow. And we get sort of the picture of abject cruelty that can be the White Cloaks. And for background, these are people who don't like anyone touching the power. They saw the breaking of the world by the male Aes Sedai as reason why no one should touch it. No one has any business uh, messing, basically, with the forces of creation. So they hate all Aes Sedai. They love to capture them, root out anyone that they think could be. It's not their main goal. Their main professed goal is to root out all dark friends and any influence of the shadow. So they have just generic Wonder Bread White Cloaks, and then there's also the Questioners. And we open with Eamon Valda, one of the Questioners. Yeah, and we see that, at least in the TV series, channeling is tied to using your hands. Yes. As an Aes Sedai. It's very Prue Halliwell from Charmed. (laughs) It's um, very surprising that they went so dark so early in an episode. Yes. And for readers of the books, you get an added dimension of it because you get this more stark juxtaposition of a yellow being so cruelly burned at the stake. And the yellow Aja is all about healing. Like, of all the Ajas having their different traits and their different focus of study, healing is what makes the yellows more unique. So to see someone who had devoted her life to healing being treated so cruelly, like, if you didn't know that context, you would still say how awful it is, but this gives an extra separation between what the White Cloaks do and um, someone who has devoted her life to healing to end so cruelly. And this obviously isn't the first person that he has murdered, the first Aes Sedai that he has murdered, because he is a collection. Yes. And historically, the White Cloaks have only ever gotten one Amaralyn seat, but that was after she had already been deposed, uh, severed from the one power, stilling, as they say. Um, But they still called it a major victory, even though she was already dead. All right, so then we see uh, our uh, merry companions. Did you have something else? I did. Oh. So Eamon Valda eating that little chicken creature, better or worse than Denethor eating a tomato from Lord of the Rings. Oh, it was so gross. And how he described how the bones, you know, just make you slightly bleed to add to the flavor of it. No, thank you. I think this is worse. I will deal with cherry tomatoes popping. Um, to give me that over this any day. Yes, Denethor walked so even Valda could run. Oh. Um, so now we get the Merry Companions. They're running away from a lot of Trollocs. And that answered the question we had at the beginning of the... Uh, to answer the question from the last episode of are these Trollocs going to be distracted by Emmons Field and the Two Rivers or will they pursue Moraine and our Merry Band? 
And they do pursue the merry band. Yeah, so, endlessly. so hopefully everyone's safe back in the two rivers because we don't want them hurt. So we get to the ferry. Our heroes get across just in time. And they do what they need to to survive. They cut the ferry ropes so the bridge can't, the boat can't be used anymore. Moraine sinks it. And the ferryman goes in after it, trying to get back to his family. And he dies for his efforts. Um, it It is a tough lesson to learn um, to see someone who is just on the sidelines of this, not directly involved, have to die. And it sets up a f- future discussion in the episode of The Three O's, The Limits of What an ASDI Can Do. They can't kill people with the power unless it's in their last defense. And so what this scene with the ferryman sets up is that ASDI may set something in motion, but if a person chooses to dive in, as it were, Mm -hmm. then that's a choice that they had made, and it sort of brings to life the stories of how ASDI can be cruel, how there's always a greater price for any gifts that they give you Hmm. that it lends credibility to them being untrustworthy since her actions led to his death, even though it was his choice to dive back into the river to try and go after his clearly sinking barge. They get to a very nice campsite. I'd like to go camping here. It's very picturesque and there's even a very convenient cavern with a doorway. Yes. Which I thought it was a nice touch that it lends credibility to how the world was broken and how cities moved, cities changed. Who knows what that could have been in the previous age or even a thousand years ago during Manetherin. But it serves a good purpose now. It's probably a little bit more easy, uh, better than trying to do the logs that were flooded out and created a little shelter that they used in the books. Mm-hmm. But it's still a nice shelter for them to hide while still building up this world a little bit. Moraine gets Egwene up from a dead sleep to drag her out to the woods to teach her how to use some of the one power. So uh, this is pretty faithful to the books in that um, she helps Egwene a little bit the first two times, but the last time is Egwene doing it herself. Right. Egwene is going... Well, I shouldn't spoil that. (laughs) Spoiler censor on myself. But as you said, it's faithful to the books. It gives good insight into the training. I was surprised that she didn't mention how few wilders survive. Uh, Women who can channel without any sort of training. Normally, they would need some sort of guidance. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they may pull too much and get burned out. Um, you get some of these warnings later on when we learn about Manetherin and Eldrine trying too much of the power. But I thought it was a nice moment between the two. And it really strengthens Egwene's character. Like, she's already clearly very strong and clearly has a good head on her shoulders. And so Moraine's working through some of the consequences and pushing Egwene to think more strategically I thought was a really nice touch and really plays to Egwene's strengths as a character and how awesome she's going to be. After her little lesson wraps up, 
We then get the CW moment of the week, where Egwene cuddles up to a sleeping Rand outside, and he wakes up and says that he just needs a little space. He wanted to be alone. This episode is very dramatic for Rand. He has lots of feelings. He lashes out in odd ways that don't always seem appropriate. Yeah, it seems very... uh, He was pretty chill in the first episode, and... For some reason, he's super on edge, and we see a little bit of that with the nightmare that he has, so, I mean, that's a reason why he could be a little on edge, but he seems very hurt by Egwene saying that she wants to be a wisdom still, and it seems throughout the course of this episode they realize that, well, we probably can't go home. So that's sort of off the table. He doesn't know enough about the Aes Sedai to know that he couldn't be with her in the future. It just seems very soap opera-y. He's really whiny. It reminded me of Anakin Skywalker in the prequels. Just (laughs) super emo for no reason at all. Which sort of fits into his character overall, which is... Why I mentioned the last episode, he's not always my favorite character to read about. I generally find Nynaeve, Egwene, even Perrin more interesting than Rand because of this, because of his weird, like, stubborn tantrums where just like, dude, you know better. You clearly know better. Yeah, and we even see them have a totally opposite moment near the end of the episode where they're staring off at the cityscape and holding hands. It It's very odd how they're crafting this relationship because it's so hot and cold and we're only in the second episode. I don't feel we've gotten time to breathe to really take in anything that's going on with them. And it's almost as if Rand doesn't necessarily know how to be a good friend without being a romantic partner partner yeah like if he can't have one then he doesn't know how to be the other which is so odd because it seems like they had a really solid friendship before they slept together so it i will stand by my statement of last episode that they really sort of interjected i feel unnecessary drama into the relationship yes i agree um we get a scene, or we talked about the dream a little bit, yeah. which I hope they bring through. is a really nice touch in the books, and they brought it forth where both Parent and Matt had the same dream as Rand with the bat. And when Maureen says dreams have power, I was a little bit hoping that she would go into a little bit more of like the world of dreams being a thing or her being able to shield their dreams as long as she tells them about it or they tell her about them but it it still worked i was just hoping a little bit more but maybe that context is coming down the road in a once we learn more about other people's abilities and how dreams are play a larger role in the series coming up and Rand barfing out that bat was so gross and this was the second episode that we saw on the big screen and it was graphic i mean you're seeing this in a theater and it is so so gross it was guttural yes um 
We get a nice moment with Perrin filling water and some wolves, and he is taken aback by their presence at first and thinking they're going to eat him. But then the way one just sniffs his wound and licks it, trying to get it clean, you would think that that would be a indicator for him of what's to come. Um, And not to be so afraid of the wolves, but he maintains that and the wolves go off on their way, which is fine. It's like, it's a nice touch. It's a nice intro to help build up Perrin. And him not telling Moraine that he's injured is sort of in line with them not totally trusting the Aes Sedai. And like you said, typically a gift from the Aes Sedai comes with a price. Right. So that's why it's nice that Egwene just sort of reams everyone out for being dicks, basically, to Mm -hmm. Moraine and... Egwene points out that Maureen is running herself ragged trying to keep them strong, trying to keep the horses from becoming overtired and she's already wounded and she's becoming weaker and the boys don't see that. It's only Egwene that notices it and draws it to their attention. And while they're riding along they sing a song that they know from home and it's one of the songs that everyone knows but they really don't know the background of it. And this is one of those moments I was looking forward to. I'm really glad that they put it in. because Partly because they would need to later on to get the story of Manethrin and what they mean by the old blood. But it's just a really good piece of world building. And it's I thought it was very well done for Moraine to give them this context of this song that sort of provides the foundation for the two rivers, who they are as a people, who they were as a people, and that Eldrine was a really powerful Aes Sedai, and she lost her warder, her husband, the king, and through that shock, she channeled too much of the power, she burned herself out, but in a way that destroyed the Dark One's army that was marching on their land, and she saved her people basically by saving herself, but also in her grief and drawing too much. So that was well done, I thought. And it was a moment that they all sort of came together again, and you could see that Moraine was the acknowledged leader. This was after they had encountered all these white cloaks in the woods and really felt threatened by that presence. Yeah, for Moraine to see that Eamon Valda had seven rings on his belt of different Ajas, and for her to work within the three O's, but still be able to protect herself and to protect her wards, that was well done and well played. Yeah, she didn't lie, but she didn't tell the full truth. Right. And I thought it was interesting when she said that all ASA are her sisters, when, according to the prequel, she knows that there are some who are dark friends... In my mind, I always auto-correct it to Dark Fiends, because that sounds more dramatic. (laughs) But she knows that, but she still considers them all her sisters, regardless. And after they had their nice bonding moment as a group again, Moraine's going downhill real quick. It's true. They, as they travel, she gets weaker, more pale. The Megatron did a really good job with this. Yeah. And the locations that they had are just amazingly beautiful as they travel through. 
you get them up on a cliff in one of those like why are you up on a cliff but also is to show off the scenery and the beauty so it may not be a choice i would make in real life but i know why they make that choice when they're making a tv series yeah and even down to the costumes you can tell that they come from a farming community they're wearing sheepskins it's really well designed to uh, underscore the differences in the cultures which is something that all along we've said we really want to see right because they're so built up in the books this world building that even the clothes that people wear are so different and like Perrin's shirt looks like someone who would be working in a forge with a little corner that can come down like those Starfleet uniforms you like yes and it makes sense for each of them to be wearing what they wear so I thought that was really nice and uh, while they're camping out, Egwene it wakes up out of a dead sleep because she senses something. And she sees this terrible eyeless one giving it scream and it has teeth like a shark because it just has multiple jaws and multiple rows <laughs> of very sharp teeth. And Len is like, yo, we gotta go. And he goes to the one place that Moraine probably wanted them to avoid in this area of the world. Right. She gets a little bit foreshadowing when she's talking about Manethrin and their neighbor Aridal, who had promised to send Manethrin aid when the Trolloc army was attacking, but never did. And so we got a little bit more about this other city where they just built a huge wall around their city and didn't help anyone. And then by the end of the war, nothing living was within those walls that we're supposed to protect them. Right. It's a, They generated their own separate evil away from... Like, it's not the same sort of evil as the Dark One, but it's a separate evil that, through their uncaring, through their isolationism, consumed them and consumed everything within that city. So the way that they do it in the show, I thought was really well done. The buildings were beautiful. It really gave you that sense of there's nothing living in this. It's all dust and stone and crumbles and failing architecture. You can see some of the domes going kaput. Yeah. Egwene and Rand get a nice aerial view of the city. And it was just great. Like, it lives up to my expectations having, having read the books of what the city looks like. Yeah, and sitting in the theater, just seeing all this play out, I got some strong Lord of the Rings design vibes, um, just with how detailed everything was. Right. And those details really show through, no matter how big or small a screen is. And I thought they were going to end the episode when Egwene and Rand were just standing up there looking out over everything. It really felt like they could have ended the episode there. There was some great music. It was a great view. It had really built up sort of this juxtaposition of the, they're seeking safety here. It's safe in the Trollocs, but it still contains its own dangers and its own evils. In the books, it was... Maureen really didn't want to go in there, but they, she was driven to it, and she was healthy, so she was able to put up these wards with, a, again, capital W on the word wards for the parts that are... The protective spells that she would put out, so yes. shielding. <laughs> Thank you. That is what I was trying to get to. Um, so like a lot of things, there's a capital 
letter on the talents that are associated with the power. But she would put up these wards to protect them because she knew that there was an evil there. And instead of like a fog misty creature, it's like a black scummy thing that starts to crawl and it looks like evil lichens almost, but then we see it consume a horse and it just be reduced to goop. Mm -hmm. We get a really nice moment between Matt and Perrin where Matt gives a dagger that Perrin's wife had made and it showed that Perrin is still really feeling what he did and how he accidentally killed his wife. And again, it's one of those things where Matt can be a total pain and do some really questionable stuff. But then he has this really good side, too. So we're still seeing both sides of his personality at this point. Yeah, it comes across that he really cares about his friends and is doing what he can to try and comfort Perrin in this moment. Which also set up a nice moment where Matt is talking about the usefulness of this knife. The importance of keeping it clean, the fact that it's a tool, that Layla made tools, and that's how Matt had seen it. But later, when he picks up the dagger, like, there's only one use for that dagger. You know that it's just there to stab someone, versus, like, carving apples and cutting things. So how Matt goes from the usefulness of a tool in a knife to the single purpose of a dagger... I thought that was an interesting touch to juxtapose those two things and the characteristics inherent in a tool and a dagger. Yeah, he finds his dagger because he decides to wander around and he sees the shadow of someone he thinks he's following. And he's not suspicious at all of the only nice thing that they have found in this city. Everything else is gray and dusty and gross. And he's like, oh, cool something nice and golden and clean i think i'll trust this and it's an interesting choice because in the books they find a whole treasury and do you know who's missing from the scene from the books who padden fane is supposed to be in shadar logoth mm. he is also in the treasury and it sets up in the books this conflict between matt him and the knife well and, maybe and the dagger maybe that's who we saw the shadow from I hope so, because it's, it's an important plot point in the second book, in The Great Hunt, and it sort of highlights the importance of this dagger to Matt. And so having competition for it would have made sense. It's just odd that they didn't go down that route for the TV series. Yeah, It was and still good, but... We we know that Padden Fane is somewhere out there, because he... Uh ghosted out of that slaughter he last sl episode he slunk yes he was real happy about it and just crept away so i think we're going to see him again in the next few episodes um let's see so matt has his brand new shiny dagger just in time for darkness to start spreading throughout the entire city it's a great look like the effects look amazing I had a little fanboy out moment. Sad about the horse, but for this evil within the city, I thought they did a really good job of portraying it, and a really good job of how it split the group. So you have Lan and Moraine. He was packing her up, basically, while Perrin and Egwene 
become a pair and separated and Matt and Rand are separated. So they all go their separate ways. We see Egwene and Perrin climb to the highest rampart, driven up by this evil lichen as it consumes the city. And they take a flying leap off this massive high wall into the river to escape. Matt and Rand, however, when found their way through the city, found a rusty grate, pushed through it, presumably on the other side of the city, because they cannot find Perrin and Egwene at all. Rantlan and Moraine ride out through the way that they came in, and Moraine is not in good shape. No, she's not. And then we finish our episode with a very special reveal that Nynaeve is back. She found them. She has a knife to Lan's throat. She snuck up on him, which was one of the things I was looking forward to. Yeah. Him being th- taken by surprise that she was able to track him and find him. So that was, that was great. I'm still not going to clap for it in a theater like a lot of the other people did because I just don't do that. But this is something that you have been talking about ever since we learned that the show was coming out, that you wanted to see this moment be faithful to how you envisioned it. So was it? I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Okay. Because the follow-up conversation that happens in the next episode, which we will get to on the next episode of this podcast, it was only between two people, Nynaeve and Lan, instead of Nynaeve, Lan, and Moraine. Okay. And Moraine, I feel like, was going to provide a lot of the details that I was hoping for. But the fact that she snuck up on him, that he was totally surprised, I was living for it. Yeah, it was a great way to end an episode. So... It was a total surprise. She did not die, despite Egwene saying that she was dead. Um, She survived. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It was really cool to see her come back and see someone who we have seen be so competent with his weapons and with his skills totally taken by surprise. Absolutely. So who is your Woolhead of the Week from Episode 2? I am going to say the Fade. The eyeless one is my woolhead of the week. If you're on a cliff about to descend upon your quarry, you don't let out a scream. What is it thinking? It is not hunting appropriately. No, it's not. Like, there's no common sense in all that evil. Yeah. My woolhead of the week is a fairly obvious one that I think a lot of people will pick. It's Matt. Matt, what are you doing? You were warned not to take anything from this city. And I know that you just gave up your dagger to Perrin, but you don't need this dagger. It it sort of goes along with what we saw in episode one, where he likes shiny things and stealing them. Um, but it was so blatantly obvious of what he should not do and he just did it. And Lan even said, like, don't take anything from this evil place with you. Like, there's nothing in that city that hasn't been... Tainted. Yeah. Yeah. Not to be confused with the taint, capital T, on the male side of the power, but it's its own separate evil that can still consume you. Yeah, it just was something that... it. It's so egregious that... It is a dumb move. It's so a, It's the groaner movement, a moment. It's the, I'm going to go out on my own in this horror movie and search for something. Like, 
No. Yeah. You should know better. Yeah, and this is the exact same line of thinking that he uses in the books. Like, this is very faithful to the books in terms of how he's like, oh, I just want this dagger, so I took this dagger. It, It's... He wants that gold. Yeah, he does. And that big ruby. Yes. In the hilt. Which is iconic, and hopefully if the dream sequences continue, I'm looking forward to a moment with that. Also, with this episode, we got the intro credits. What were your thoughts on those? I thought they're very beautifully rendered, and they show... It's Aes Sedai that are the figures. Yes. But we're seeing how the fabric is being woven. And I, it strikes me as a little bit like the intro credits to the crown, where the crown is forming, or um, another fantasy series where you see things being built up like clockwork. Um, but it's different enough, and I think it's really pretty. It's a beautiful sort of um, interpretation of how things are woven together and connected. Yes, that each person's life is a thread and they get woven together into the fabric of an age. I really like the images of the Aesidae and their sort of halos, that nimbus around them. It's still not clear if regular people can see the nimbus, mm. which I hope not. I think I'm hoping that it's still just for people who, women who can channel, can see other women channel and sort of read the after image mm. of the th- threads of the weaving. But for the power being used as a metaphor for weaving and then the wheel of time and the pattern of the age and the threads of people's lives, I thought that was really good. And to see sort of like a image of what that might look like of that grand metaphor. Yeah. And the seven ajas are represented in the final scene. I thought that was really well done that you have the yellow, the red, the blue, the green, and all the ajas, and then there's a darkness in the middle. Mm. Could that be the eighth aja? <laughs> we will find out. All right, any other reactions to this episode? I think that was it. It's a strong second ep. It really highlights the beauty, the detail, the sort of commitment that the show has to this world building that we talked about in our second episode of the podcast of how intricate this world is, how much detail exists, and they're doing a great job of showing it. They are. So I'm excited to see what the next episode brings. Hopefully you will join us for our next episode review. In the meantime, go ahead, give us a follow over on Instagram at Two Rivers Two Takes. Let us know what you think about this episode. What your Woolhead moment of the week is. Oh, yes. There are a lot of opportunities here. And we will catch you next time on Two Rivers, Two Takes.